help defend the church by becoming a supporter of Family Life International. Your contributions enable us to continue our work to promote the faith, defend the family and promote the sanctity of life. Make a real difference today. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk donate. Good evening, and thank you for this rare opportunity to comment on a subject more fully. On Monday the 4th of December 2017, a crisis arose in the long process of emancipating the United Kingdom from the secularist legal system of the European Union. It was about the question of how emancipation would affect commerce and travel between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Reports by journalists had been leading the public to believe that the UK government and the relevant representatives of the EU were on the verge of announcing that an agreement had been reached, in which event the EU side would be willing to proceed to discuss other matters. But on the 4th of December it was announced that agreement had not been reached. The Democratic Unionist Party, on whose support in Parliament the UK government is dependent for survival, objected to a plan that dealings between Northern Ireland and the Republic should be governed by rules which would not apply to other parts of the UK. From a point, political point of view, that plan was controversial, and the DUP had apparently not been told about it until very shortly before the alleged agreement was going to be announced. The government of the Republic of Ireland are fully committed enthusiasts for the EU, and they want future dealings between the, the Republic and Northern Ireland to continue as closely as possible to EU rules. The matter is significant politically because on each side of the border many people hope that one day Northern Ireland will become part of the Republic. If the Republic's involvements with Northern Ireland were to be treated differently from those which it has with other parts of the UK, it would tend to generate a feeling of greater closeness between the Republic and the North and thereby foster a mentality of regarding the border as something artificial and anachronistic which might as well be removed altogether. The idea is similar to the one underlying the EU currency, the Euro. Years ago, the President of the European Commission, Romano Prodi, said plainly that the single currency is a political rather than an economic matter. It serves the purpose of ever closer union between the member states on the way to eventual complete political union in a single European superstate, the United States of Europe. That's the political context of the Irish government's attitude to rules governing relationships with the North after Brexit. In total contrast, the DUP are very rigid in their determination that Northern Ireland's legal status as part of the UK will not be weakened in any way. Nobody knows whether Northern Ireland would be better off or worse off by having special rules regarding the Republic and or other parts of the EU. But to the DUP, the political principle involved outweighs questions of financial gain or loss. The most important points for the DUP are that Northern Ireland is part of the UK and that all parts of the UK should be governed by one set of rules. Now I come to why the crisis on the 4th of December is relevant to this talk. According to journalists, Advisers to the relevant negotiators from the UK and the EU were looking for a form of words which could be accepted by the Republic of Ireland's government and by the Democratic Unionists. Reports said that they might consider agreeing 
that the relevant rules in the Republic and Northern Ireland should converge, or be aligned, or harmonised. It would depend on what such words mean. More importantly, it would depend on what people believe them to mean, or want them to mean, or are determined to say that they mean. After a few days of seemingly uninterrupted ingenuity and cajoling, on the 8th of December there was an announcement that agreement had been reached, and on the 15th of December the agreement was approved by each EU member state's representatives. Consequently, the EU were willing to begin negotiations with the UK about how trade will be conducted after Brexit. The President of the EU's Council of Ministers, Donald Tusk, and the President of the EU's Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, said that those negotiations will be much more difficult than the ones faced already. Listening to comments from a range of politicians and journalists gave me an impression that the agreement about Ireland, which was announced on the 8th of December, is what is known colloquially as a fudge, and I remembered what the French Marshal Ferdinand Foch said about the 1919 Treaty of Versailles, which was the formal end of the First World War. He said, this is not peace, it is an armistice for 20 years. The Second World War started 19 years afterwards. We shall have to wait to see whether the agreement was more than a fudge, which enabled the parties to start discussing a post-Brexit trading agreement between the EU and the whole of the UK. But in December 2017, it looked as though the questions about the border in Northern Ireland had been resolved to everyone's satisfaction. Note that I said it looked as though they had. Do not be surprised if sooner or later experience shows that they have not. That is how the current political difficulty illustrates the broader trend and problem which I chose as subject of this talk. What is the trend and why is it a problem? The trend is to project a false impression of agreement by means of words which mean different things to the people involved. It is not rendered significantly less discreditable by a claim that it results from a good motive. Sometimes the words used are deceptive by reason of their being in common usage. Sometimes they are so unfamiliar and or obscure and or vague that their meaning is a matter of mere guesswork. And sometimes they are more significant because of what they omit than because of what they say. That reminds me of something else. Do you remember the court case in the 1980s by which Mrs Victoria Gillick tried heroically to prevent contraception and abortion being arranged for young girls without the consent of their parents? In her book, entitled A Mother's Tale, she provided the following quotation from Aldous Huxley's book entitled Brave New World. The greatest triumphs of propaganda have been accomplished not by doing something, but by refraining from doing. Great is the truth, but still greater from a practical point of view is silence about truth. Unquote. Papering over disagreement can be seen not only in political matters but also in religious ones. It's not a tactic which emerged only recently. Taking refuge in uncertainty of meaning attracted the attention and opposition of Cardinal Newman. I'm indebted and grateful to Bishop Patrick O'Donoghue formerly of Lancaster Diocese, for drawing my attention to this. In his short book, entitled Fit for Mission, Church, 
he quoted the cardinal as follows. Is there not an attempt to educate without religion? That is, by putting all forms of religion together, which goes to the same thing. And an attempt to deprive the Bible of its one meaning to the exclusion of all other. To make people think that it may have a hundred meanings, all equally good. Or in other words, that it has no meaning at all, is a dead letter and may as well be put aside. Unquote. Ambiguous and meaningless expressions maximise the prospects of fostering goodwill and attracting support, but are not worth anything significant in practice because the imagined support disintegrates when people come down to brass tacks and take a position on concrete issues. There's an Irish connection here too. They have a song which applies very well, although part of it suggests that its composer was thinking of Irish unity in armed rebellion against governance by Britain. I don't know the title and have not tried to discover it, but I suspect that it is The One Road. This is the part which fits the present context so well. We're on the one road, it may be a long road, we're on the road to God knows where. We're on the one road, it may be the wrong road, but we're together now, who cares? In the Christian religious world, ecumenism is the most fertile of fields for tactical language. I wonder whether it is at least indirectly responsible for the predominance of what a priest in a letter to me probably 20 years ago described as the pabulum on which people had been fed and which he blamed, surely very reasonably, for the evident fact that, as he wrote, they know nothing and need total evangelization. I had never heard of pabulum, so I looked in the Oxford Dictionary of English, which defined it as bland or insipid intellectual matter, entertainment, etc. I understood instantly why the priest had used it. Sermons, at least all but a very few of the ones which I have heard since goodness knows when, are full of it. I don't want to be unfair about this. I know that producing something which will engage the mind and stiffen the time, sorry, stiffen the spine, takes time. But on the other hand, a typical sum lasts for not much more than five minutes. That's far too little for developing a theme adequately. And without adequate development, the main points are likely to seem rather bald and even abrupt. Unfortunately, my experience is that even if they dare to relate to people's thinking or behaviour, they're almost always feebly bland. I wonder whether you agree with me that even in making comments outside the time limits of a sermon, clerics seem to have an unlimited ability to produce a fog of mind-dulling vagueness. Such unchallenging non-denominational wall has two effects. It compounds the substantial factors outside which have enfeebled the church and moved it to the margins, at best, of many people's lives, even of the minority who still attend weekend mass. The other effect, even if not the intention, is that authentic Catholic identity is subordinated to an ecumenicised community characterised by conviviality and discreet inattention to substantial disunity of belief. Hiding matters, which are controversial, is contrary to the Vatican II decree on the apostolate of the laity, apostolicam actiositatem. Ironically, Vatican II has often been invoked to justify the smothering of disputed subjects. 
Apostolic Amatuositatim, paragraph 31, if you want to check it, said that doctrine should be learned more diligently, especially on controversial matters, so that Catholics would be better able to counteract all forms of materialism and, obviously, other un-Catholic attitudes. Learning it more diligently implies that it should be taught more diligently and clearly, whereas in practice, the more controversial it is, the more certain it is to be suppressed. If it cannot be suppressed, it tends to be presented in terms which suggest that everyone really agrees. Michael Davis used to be quite hot on that sort of thing. His comments on agreed statements from the Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission focused on it. An example was his review in the July 1974 edition of Christian Order, a book entitled The Eucharist, Unity or Truth. Probably the book's out of print by now. It used to be available from Pro Fide, which I think disappeared by absorption into Pro Ecclesia et Pontificia. Perhaps they have a few copies left. I'm going to say a little more about this particular aspect of ambiguity, and I hope that you'll find it interesting enough to justify the digression. In his review of the Eucharist, Unity or Truth, Michael Davis wrote that the first Anglican prayer book was issued in 1549 and he quoted from Eucharistic Sacrifice and the Reformation by Francis Clarke, another book which used to be available from Pro Fide. Mr Davis described that as the authoritative study of the differences between Anglican and Catholic belief about the Eucharist. He wrote that on page 182, Francis Clarke explained that the first Anglican prayer book, quote, could not be convicted of overt heresy, for it was adroitly framed and contained no express denial of pre-Reformation doctrine. It was an ingenious essay in ambiguity, purposely worded in such a manner that the more conservative could place their own construction upon it and reconcile their consciences to using it, while the reformers would use it in their own sense and would recognise it as, and Michael Davis put the following 11 words in italics, an instrument for furthering the next stage of the religious revolution. After pointing out that the Vatican II decree on ecumenism had said that it is of course essential that doctrine be presented in its entirety and that nothing is so foreign to the spirit of ecumenism as a false conciliatory approach which harms the purity of Catholic doctrine and obscures its assured gen genuine meaning, Michael Davis returned to the agreed statement by ARCIC. He wrote that it contained a statement by a Catholic bishop that the Eucharist makes present here and now the once for all sacrifice of Christ. And then Michael Davis wrote that an Anglican contributor explained that what is made present is not the historical sacrifice of Christ itself, but the efficacy of it. According to Michael Davis, the Eucharist, Unity or Truth, provided in parallel columns a list of other mutually contradictory statements, which led the priest who compiled the list to write that the agreement does seem to be based on accidents of language rather than the substance of doctrine. Further evidence came subsequently when the previously quoted Anglican contributor wrote as follows, quote, Any suggestion of the sacrifice of Christ being somehow continued in heaven and represented by priests at altars on earth is positively excluded by the agreed statement on the Eucharist. 
The statement claimed to be a substantial agreement from which, according to the chairman in the preface, nothing essential has been omitted. That statement, continued the Anglican commentator, spoke explicitly of the sacrifice of Christ, but it never described the Eucharist as a sacrifice. Even a substantial agreement did not require that. Unquote. It would, of course, have required such a description in order to be a truly substantial, or rather more accurately, a substantive agreement. But because it would have been rejected by the Anglican side, no such description could be included. The agreement was to a form of words which hid a centuries-old disagreement on doctrine. Yet publicising it as an agreement was likely to give an impression to Catholics that the Anglicans had converted to Catholic doctrine and to lead Anglicans to think that Catholics had accepted that it's the Anglicans who've got it right. In other words, the announced agreement gave the impression that we all believe the same thing. That's the risk and the effect of ambiguity. Now I'm going to take you in a slightly different direction, but still with reference to the overall theme. To begin the new direction, I return very briefly to the example of a search for words which could lead people to believe that the problem relating to Northern Ireland and the Republic after Brexit has been solved. In such recurrent difficulties in international politics, journalists often tell us that the, that the search for an acceptable form of words is being carried out by diplomats or officials. Without any inside knowledge on which to base my hunch, I'd not be surprised if often those diplomats or officials are lawyers. Sometimes when other examples of uncertain meaning are reported in the news, the report will end with a comment such as the only people likely to benefit from the uncertainty are lawyers. At this juncture, perhaps I should declare what could be called loosely a vested interest. Although, of course, it's only a figure of speech. It's not a financial opportunity. I've never had a talent or much motivation for making money. I used to be a lawyer. Furthermore, the first realisation which dawned on me as a law student, and it dawned very early indeed in the course, was that anyone who is no good with words would struggle with law. Fortunately, I've always been very comfortable with words, although there must be many people whose vocabulary and talent for spontaneous oral fluency are much greater than mine. Probably as a result of training building on the foundations of nature, I seem to have a tendency to notice ambiguity. That can be useful, but also quite disruptive, especially in conversation about ordinary matters. I have a friend who on such occasions, when instinctively I try to clarify an ambiguity, says that she never has the same problem when talking with anyone else. And sometimes, years ago, when the same thing happened at home, irritation prompted the comment, oh, the lawyer's coming out again. I hope that you will not be irritated by the remainder of what I wish to say. I'm going to use some memories from my legal background. They might be more interesting to lawyers, but my reason for saying what follows is that it has a much wider application, as I hope to make clear. Many different circumstances have shown that courts pay much more attention to the substance of a situation than to the form in which it is presented. In the mid-1980s, 
a judge used a memorable hypothetical image to illustrate the point. He said that the manufacture of a five-pronged implement for manual digging results in a fork, even if the manufacturer, unfamiliar with the English language, insists that he intended to make and has made a spade. Words identify things, but the nature of a thing is not necessarily proved by words applied to it. That is because words can be misapplied. Whether the application of a word is correct or incorrect can be a matter of opinion, and of course people are generally regarded as entitled to hold whatever opinions they choose. But the success of human interaction depends on people understanding correctly what each other mean, and words are the primary way by which meaning is revealed. Lord Denning called them the vehicle of thought. He encouraged lawyers to cultivate command of English and clarity in its use. And he wrote that command of language is the key to success in all professions in which words are important. Another judge said, just over a century earlier, that there is not a more fruitful source of error in law than the inaccurate use of language. And according to an article in 1973 by Archbishop Fulton Sheen, in a newspaper called the Irish Catholic. When Confucius was asked what he would do first in order to reform the world, he replied, insist on the correct definition of words. Of course, comments like those are opposites of the relativism which now pervades many countries and which has been alarmingly evident in political debates and judicial decisions. New and sometimes bizarre meanings of words do become adopted, and unless they meet intransigent determination to apply the established meanings, the results can be surprising to say the least. Rules and definitions are essential, but can break down when the words comprised in them are over-analysed or corrupted by new opinions. Whether the resulting confusion and contradictions are helpful is itself a matter of opinion, but even relativists should concede that certainty is desirable because it enables people to know where they stand. Events often cannot, and human patience often will not, await the outcome of, of a protracted process of refinement to establish meaning. That helps to explain why, in politics and religion, some people favour forms of words which are imprecise enough to be acceptable to all sides, and thereby give an impression of unity, but which fail to prevent subsequent disagreements. Forty years ago, an expert in international law wrote that, in general, the wider the area over which law is unified, the less specific must be the principles on which unification is based. He gave as an example the European Convention on Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms, which are part of the, the law in the UK and in the EU, and said that the, the geographical scope of agreement was achieved only by stating the principles in what he called the widest, most general and least useful terms. Human rights, interpreted in the vacuum of relativism, remind me of Humpty Dumpty's claim to complete autonomy in deciding what words mean. And they have hastened societies to the great fall which, according to the well-known nursery rhyme, he had. Lawyers bear some responsibility for this, although because most of them are only servants who are subject to being overruled by higher authorities, they should not be blamed too harshly. In 1980, 
the president of the English and Welsh solicitors professional body, said that they had unequalled ability to influence thinking in this country, but that he was not at all sure that they recognised the potential sufficiently. Probably they did not. And certainly I saw no sign that they did or were interested. Lawyers as a whole, wrote one of them, are a complacent breed. In my experience, which was contrary to my expectation when aspiring to join them, they are not recognisably different from society as a whole, either in appearance, bearing, manner or opinion. I would be hard put to remember any who seemed to believe that influencing other people's thinking in any connection other than advising clients about what the law required was or should be a significant function or desire of a lawyer. If my impression was correct, lawyers were neither more nor less interested than anyone else in whether the law should be, or as Roscoe Pound, an American legal academic, wrote, had been, an instrument of social engineering. They would not have been inclined to ponder much on whether Lord Scarman was right in his opinion that the, the nature of the law is to preserve, not to destroy, that its traditional role is that of protecting the existing order and that it is totally inconsistent with revolution. Law certainly does safeguard the status quo but it also has a destructive and revolutionary capability. Revolutionaries don't ignore the law, they change it. That is an important way by which a revolution is implemented. The International Commission of, the, of Jurists declared at their Congress in Delhi in 1959 that, quote, the rule of law is a dynamic concept for the expansion and fulfilment of which jurists are primarily responsible and which shall be employed not only to safeguard and advance the civil and political rights of the individual in a free society, but also to establish social, economic, educational and cultural conditions under which his legitimate aspirations and dignity may be realised. The establishment of the stated conditions requires the destruction of those which they replace and may produce such substantial change as to constitute a revolution. Contrary to what Lord Scarman said in the lecture from which I quoted his comments, he acknowledged and approved the dynamic dimension of law but said that it's manifested by prohibiting evil rather than by affirming good. Two questions arise. How far should it go to prohibit evil? And how should evil and good be recognised? In the Summer Theologica, St Thomas Aquinas highlighted St Augustine's opinion that human law cannot forbid and punish all wrongdoing, because if it tried to eradicate all evils, it would also take away much which was good. St Thomas developed that by writing that human law cannot, and indeed should not, forbid everything which natural law forbids. His explanation was that the purpose, that is the higher purpose, of human law is to bring people to virtue, not suddenly, but step by step. He pointed out that actions result from interior dispositions or habits. Someone who has a disposition or habit of virtue will behave differently from someone who lacks it. Adults behave differently from children, usually. The law is, he wrote, prescribed for a great many people, most of whom have no high standard of morality. Therefore it does not forbid all vices from which people of high moral standards refrain, 
but only grave ones, which people of average morality can avoid. It forbids especially vices which cause harm to other people and must be prevented if human society is to be maintained, such as murder and theft. It must, said an English judge, Lord Moore, in 1937, seek to apply the standards of men, not those of angels. If, wrote St Thomas, the law were to burden imperfect people with requirements which they were not sturdy enough to fulfil, that inability would lead them into greater wrongs. St Thomas cited, of course, our Lord's analogy with new wine being put into old wineskins. In other words, heavy burdens being imposed on weak people. The skins would burst and the wine would be wasted. In other words, the people would lose respect for the law as a whole and fall into more extensive non-compliance. That, of course, can be used as an excuse for a policy of laxity especially if combined with a suggestion that this, that or other restriction or prohibition is not succeeding in suppressing the relevant type of behaviour. St Augustine seems to have been aware of that idea. St Thomas Aquinas quoted him as having said that even though human law does not do everything, the something which it does do should not be approved of. An example has occurred to me. At the end of what is called <clears throat> a March for Life, which is an annual leisurely stroll rather than a march, the participants reassemble at the starting point. A few years ago, on the opposite edge of the crowd from where I stood, there was a girl holding a placard on which was a handwritten statement that criminalising abortion won't stop abortion. I agree that it would not. But criminalising assault, for example, does not stop assault. If the girl had been hit by a pro-lifer, probably she would not have reasoned that therefore the crime of assault may as well be abolished and replaced by an assailant's right to choose. The answer to the second question, which I mentioned a few minutes ago, how should evil and good be recognised, depends of course on philosophy, the process by which people settle on meaning. Philosophy shapes our opinion of meaning. The meaning of something is expressed usually by words and the law is among the results. In 1984, the Times Higher Education Supplement published an article entitled Looking for a New Vision by a gentleman named Kenneth Lawson. In it he wrote that, quote, without external reference points against which to test and to validate hypotheses and beliefs, we are left with no criteria by which to separate the true from the false and sense from nonsense. Unquote. He added that resorting to ordinary language might not be perfect, but there, that there seemed to be few alternatives which don't take us into meaninglessness. I wonder what, if he's still alive, he thinks about, for example, a now widespread opinion that whether an individual is male or female should be entirely dependent on the wish and decision of that individual. Or the opinion, now a legally binding decision of the UK Supreme Court, that another ordinary word, participate, means taking part physically rather than supervising. On which basis Rudolf Hirsch, Commandant of Auschwitz, would have been exonerated by the War Crimes Court at Nuremberg from participation in the operation of gas chambers. Philosophy, law and the language which links them change. 
as has happened so very clearly in our lifetimes. But as Kenneth Lawson went on to comment, it can be difficult to recognise change while it is occurring. That will be so when the change is much more gradual than sudden, and also when advocates of change are skilful in producing and popularising the use of words which are helpful to their objective. Professor Charles Handy said that in regard to social change, words are the bugles, the bridges and the heralds. He added that when our language changes, behaviour will not be far behind, and that words are so often the outward signs of a discontinuity which is at work, triggering some upside-down thinking. The people who sow the seeds of such upside-down thinking often dislike blunt, specific words which are unhelpful to their purposes and promote vague ones which cloud the issue and subtly change perceptions. In a, in a lecture in 1983, the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales, Lord Lane, illustrated that point as follows. Quote, instead of encouraging youngsters to think straight, instead of making clear what is good and what is bad, society deliberately blurs such matters which ought above all to be clearly defined. We use innocuous words or words with happy and pleasant connotations to describe things which are the opposite of innocuous and pleasant. By the permissive society we mean the immoral society. Look, he continued, at what has happened to the word gay. It had beautiful connotations of carefree happiness. It has now been so devalued that it is unusable without causing sniggers. That corrupts the language and gives tacit approval to the situation which is being so misdescribed. Tacit approval. If he were alive today, what would he say about so-called gay marriage? and about the apologies and defiant praise which politicians have competed with each other to lavish on the relevant people. The men, he added, who are, by today's jargon, are described as gay, are not gay. They are homosexual and or buggers, and it is a pity that they are not called that." Unquote. If anyone, at any level of society, said that now, they'd get into all sorts of trouble. If someone in an, in an important position said it, there would be national uproar, and the culprit, as he would be portrayed by most of the reports and comments, would be likely to lose his livelihood. Experience has shown that without vigilance in the use of language, and the defenders of gayness are very vigilant against unhelpful uses of it, the law will be affected. And because law affects opinions, it will become an instrument of even revolutionary change. As Lady Wootton wrote, morals which were said to have divine authority have been steadily watered down from particular rules to general ones, and each such retreat and surrender of a position previously presented as final is a threat to the fundamental security of religious morals and provokes unbelievers to ask, why stop here? Some people will of course think that today there is little noticeable connection between what happens to religious morals or religion-based morals and what happens in philosophy, language and law, because religion is now regarded as a private matter, neither more nor less creditable than pornography in a licensed sex shop, and preferably kept just as much out of sight, except for anyone who wants to enter the premises where it is allowed. Paradoxically, 
as Christianity's hold, such as it was, on the nation, has visibly wilted. Attention to and assertion of what are called human rights have replaced it, as if Christianity and human rights are mutually incompatible. Whether they are depends on how they are expressed and interpreted, which of course brings us back to philosophy. As Kenneth Lawson wrote, we need external reference points by which to separate truth from falsehood. In the UK, and seemingly many other nations, such reference points do not exist. Earlier I mentioned the International Commission of Jurists. A former secretary of its British section said this, quote, Human rights are a religious problem as well as a constitutional problem. We have to learn how to exercise power over each other and to be willing to submit not only to external disciplines but to standards and codes of behaviour which are as compelling as external disciplines. This, he said, is what I mean by saying that the problem of human rights is basically a religious problem. For the right exercise of power involves some kind of training, the constant instilling of ethical concepts, and the recognition that any power that we are privileged to wield over our fellows does not come to us as of right to do with as we think fit, but as a sacred trusteeship for which we have to answer to a power higher than ourselves. That broadly worded proposition is about as near as it's possible to get to gaining acceptance of the idea that religion should be acknowledged and given practical effect as superior to man-made law. Unfortunately, many people in Britain seem to believe that the only power higher than themselves to which they are answerable is their employer or the law of the land. The largest non-Christian religious section of the population comprises the Muslims. According to pages 62 and 63 of Inside Islam, a guide for Catholics by Daniel Alley and Robert Spencer, Muslims have no definitive final human interpreter of the Quran. The same applies to Protestant Christians because the misnamed Reformation rejected the dogma that the Catholic Church is the only divinely authorised interpreter and teacher of God's laws. There seems no reason for confidence that the dogma is believed even by most people who consider themselves to be Catholics. Results of a survey by Family Life International UK suggested that it's not. That's to be expected. Never stated principles are very likely to lose their influence. Therefore, by an authentically Catholic standard, the philosophy which dominates the UK is terribly confused. Unsurprising consequences are that the language which dominates debate is often conceptually wayward, and so is the law. A leaflet advertising a journal entitled Bioethics quoted an opinion of Baroness Warnock, sometimes described as a moral philosopher, that in a pluralistic society such as ours, to speak of a moral consensus is fanciful. Strong evidence of that is the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Act 1990 which was precipitated by the report of a committee led by Baroness Warnock. Whenever that act is mentioned, I think of the late Michael Bell. In 1978, he helped to form the Association of Lawyers for the Defence of the Unborn. I was among the earliest members and remained in it throughout the 28 years of its existence. 
he would have regarded that 1990 Act as a fulfilment of his warning that if that the, the adoption of the Warnock Committee's recommendations would result in members of our own species being given less protection than that which is given to our pets. Relativism dominates much of the thinking by which our society is governed. Few people show disagreement with it and probably a large majority are unconcerned. Professor Charles Handy had two anecdotes which apply well in these circumstances. The first was the, what he called the story of the Peruvian Indians who on seeing the sails of their Spanish invaders on the horizon put it down to a freak of the weather and went on about their business having no concept of sailing ships in their limited experience. Assuming that everything would continue normally they screened out what did not fit and let disaster in. Unquote. The other anecdote was a scientific phenomenon. In a booklet Michael Davis used the same phenomenon as a metaphor for Catholics who were unaware and or complacent about the post-conciliar dilution of pre-conciliar teachings and norms. Here is the reported fact which is unpleasant and which I hope never to see. According to Professor Handy it involves a frog. I think that Michael Davis said that it involves a goldfish and I'm certain that the booklet in which he mentioned it was entitled The Goldfish Bowl. Anyway, apparently the frog or the goldfish, if put in cold water, will not bestir itself if that water is heated up slowly and gradually and will, in the, the end, let itself be boiled alive, too comfortable with continuity to realise that continuous change demands at some point a, a change in behaviour." Without wishing to spoil the effect of the metaphor, I admit to wondering whether the pitiable creature would be capable of any change in behaviour which would make a difference. Perhaps a frog could jump out of the heating water, but I think that a fish cannot jump. Complacent people might seize on that and ask, what can we do about pluralism and relativism which would make any difference? That could be the subject for a talk at another time. But I'm going to finish this talk by saying that people who do not realise and react to what is happening are like the Peruvian Indians, the goldfish and perhaps the frog. Thank you for listening to all of this. I hope that you regard the time as well spent. This MP3 recording has been made available by Family Life International. Help us to make many more available in order to promote our Catholic faith. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk and donate today. Mm -hmm.